Well, it's been a little while, um, but we're going to get back to the uh, uh, series on the Ten Commandments. We took a few weeks off with uh, Joanne's last Sunday and speaking about praise, and Nancy preached one week, and last week we talked about living transparently, which is kind of ironic now. Um, <laughs> I looked at the picture from last week's bulletin, it's a clear clear thing. Um, so, But we're trying to live transparently before God, and in doing so, with this on the Ten Commandments, it's it's tough message. Thank you. Um, it's it's tough to preach tough messages because the part of the, your heart where you're just compassionate doesn't want to offend people, and that's why a lot of times these messages are not taught because sometimes people don't want to offend people and they just want to have everyone walking out of church feeling feeling good about themselves. And the fact of the matter is, is that we all have a sinful nature, um, and God's still working on every one of us, and so the the whole point of the, the law, as we've been studying it, is to make us guilty before God, not so that we can walk in shame or condemnation, but to make us guilty so that we can go to God and get our sins forgiven and get healed, uh, forgiving one another, and begin to walk the path that God has for us. And so uh, some of the messages are tougher, but I would hope uh, each time as we come before God and we just say, God, I messed up, I blew it, I need your help, that just brings us closer to God. Uh, and then God gives us the power to go on. So we're on the seventh commandment now. We have four to go, but we're in the seventh commandment. And I'm going to begin Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Listen, sin is always a big deal and should be resisted at all costs. Yet the sin of adultery, whether in thought or in deed, is one of the most serious of all sins. It's really a sin that's entrenched so much in society today. It's always been around, but um, as you know, as you've seen society progress, what used to be called sin is not, was now tolerated. Then after it was tolerated, it was encouraged. Then when, after it's been encouraged, it's been celebrated. And so a lot of things, um, it's amazing what's happened in society, but it's more than just the act itself. And so I'm going to talk about that sin. So we can uh, get healing in every area of our lives. See, there are way too many people who think that they have not broken this commandment. And so they become complacent or overconfident in their thinking. Yet there's also a great variety and a lot of people who assume that everyone breaks it. So it must be okay. And God will just have to extend His grace to cover us for something that we really can't control. God, if everyone does it and I can't control it, I'm just going to expect your grace to cover it. So that you have those two thoughts out there, but both of these perspectives are not only wrong, they're dangerous to those who camp out in either one of the extremes. For the commandment against adultery is not just an archaic warning from the Old Testament. Some people say, that's in the Old Testament, that's the law, that the law is no longer in place. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's covered with even deeper application, and even and devastating repercussions in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tackled many of these commandments as they pertained to the heart, where sin is committed at the heart level first, even before you see the action manifest outside. Jesus went straight to the root of sin, not just what was prohibited by the letter of the law, but he especially hit this commandment hard, confronting every smug person who felt that they had not committed adultery. They figured if no one else saw it, I didn't do it. But God, Jesus went right to the hearts, even as he does to us as well. Not to shame us, but to heal us and cleanse us so that God can use us. 
Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And just like that, Jesus enlarged the net of sinners by clarifying the act was is already committed at the heart level far before it ever manifests in the flesh. In doing so, all who struggle from time to time or daily with impure thoughts of lust suddenly find themselves guilty before God of breaking this solemn commandment. But you might say, as some people do, isn't adultery just like any other sin? And I would say absolutely not. Adultery is a serious betrayal at many levels. First, it is a betrayal of your spouse, the one to whom you have committed your life. Mark 10, verses 7 and 8 says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus states that in marriage the two become one flesh, a a divine miracle orchestrated by God. Therefore, in choosing to commit adultery in thought or in deed, one severs or rips apart what God has brought together. When adultery is committed, it betrays a covenant that each spouse has asked God to oversee. When you go to get married before God, you ask God to oversee that covenant, that commitment to one another. So in effect, it seeks to undo the miracle of this union. That's why we talk so much about a a uh, God-ordained marriage versus just a civil union. A God-ordained marriage is God causes a miracle to happen by bringing a man and woman together, and then God keeps that covenant together. I don't know how you can be married today without God in it. Amen? Think about this for a moment and try to understand that while it's always unwise to obey God, there are much greater consequences for receiving a miracle in vain and actually rejecting it or seeking to undo it by an act that severs that union. One of the most destructive things about committing this sin is that you're willing to sin against someone thinking that they won't even know about it. How are they going to know if I look at this person a little bit longer? How are they going to know if I dwell on this thought a little bit longer? That's that part of that sinful nature that says you can get along with along you can get along with it as long as they don't know about it. This, of course, is a huge miscalculation. For even if you do under go undetected temporarily, God knows about it, and you know about it. And as a Christian, you will be harassed mercilessly by the Holy Spirit and by your conscience until you come into the place of unbearable pain. Now, depending on how you do and how you react to this point of pain will determine if you repent and be forgiven and cleansed and healed, or if you stay stuck in a vicious pattern of addiction, of destruction. This is part of the addictive cycle. Let me show you the following example of what the addictive cycle is with any sin. You engage in a sinful behavior, such as drug use, or sex outside of marriage, or lustful thoughts and actions. And if you're not in God's Word and cultivating an authentic relationship with Him, you might not even realize you have sinned. But let me assure you, these things are sins. 
and have severe consequences if they are not repented of and resisted. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. It says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? These are verses that are not preached a lot today, but they are in the Bible. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's usually with a passage like this where many Christians suddenly get very selective and only interpret Scripture as it's beneficial to them. Some are very quick to point out that homosexuality is a sin, but they fail to see that in his own verses that their own sins of lust are equally grieve God. Therefore, the Bible tells us not to be deceived. All sexual immorality is grouped together here, whether it's homosexuality or even heterosexual lusts and adulterous intentions or or acts with someone other than your spouse, as well as several other undisciplined behaviors. It's all together here. Those who practice any of these sins without acknowledgement of God's Word, without conviction, without repentance, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible says. I know a lot of people have spoken differently, but if we're going to go to the Bible, we need to know what the Bible says. And again, remember, all of us sin... All of us fall short of the glory of God. But if we come to God and repent of the sin, not say it's okay, but repent of it and ask God to help us, then God forgives us. But we're at a dangerous part where churches are allowing sin and encouraging sin because they say times have changed. We need to stay with the Word of God. Amen? Sex is a gift that God has given a man and a woman who enter into the covenant of marriage. Anything done improperly outside of this context of marriage in thought or in deed is immoral and it's prohibited by God. Not just here, but several places in the Bible. The fact of the matter is that we all have sinned in one way or another and we all are guilty before God. Remember we said the law is like a mirror and it brings us to the mirror and it shows us our sin. Not to condemn us, but to show us we need Jesus. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what we are to acknowledge. And for this we all must repent, which means we turn from our sin and we turn to God, asking for forgiveness, and He promises to forgive us if we come to Him, to find grace and strength so that we can stay away from sin. Do not be deceived and try to justify your sins to God, for you will always be on the losing end. If you have a genuine relationship with the Lord, then once you have committed a sin, knowing it goes against God's Word, you will experience a growing sense of guilt, whatever that sin is. Maybe you lost it and just yelled at your kids. Maybe you watched something you shouldn't have. Maybe you spent uh, overspent on whatever, whatever it may be. As soon as you do it, if you're close to God, there's a conviction that comes upon you. And it's hard to deal with that guilt, so you need to decide what to do with that guilt. If at this point, if you're open to the Holy Spirit's conviction, then you allow the guilt to drive you to God in repentance and confession of your sins so that God can forgive you and begin the process of restoration. 
So it takes a while to cleanse the heart and to cleanse the mind so you can faithfully go to God. However, if the guilt crushes you and wreaks havoc on your mind and your insecurities, the guilt will eventually turn to shame. What's the difference? Well, guilt is feeling bad about something that you did. If you understand that your sin is never just between you and the person you sinned against, and that it always always affects your relationship with God, then you respect the guilt and you take it seriously. When King David committed adultery by having an affair with another man's wife, he eventually was convicted by the words of the prophet Nathan. At this point, David broke down in heartfelt repentance and cried out to the Lord. He knew he had sinned against God. It was during David's repentance that God gave him the revelation of whom he truly had sinned against. It was more than just sinning against this, this uh, woman's husband. In fact, Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm about repentance. And in it we see David's words when he realized he was convicted of the sin. He said, For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You see, if you think you're sinning and no one's going to know about it, and you can keep on going, go do, doing that, got your every sin comes before God, between you and God. David allowed, however, his guilt to open up his heart to conviction by the Holy Spirit, which removed excuses and blame and justification and produced a true repentant heart in him. However, there are many who remain closed off to God during their times of guilt. They wallow in self-pity and drown in guilt. Instead of letting their guilt drive them to the cross, they let their feelings of guilt convince them that they really blew it. And they should know better. And possibly even their faith is compromised. And I, I blew it again, God. I, I should be better than this. I'm a Christian. I really messed up. I... God, you probably want nothing to do with me. I'm a fake. All, the, all those thoughts of condemnation are the enemy going in and speaking to your mind when you sin. Because he knows it's not just the sin that, that separates you between you and God, but if he can keep you from coming to God to get healed, then he wins. And so whenever we sin, whatever the sin may be, we need to push past those and go to God because God's the only one that can help us. Has this ever been you? Have you ever felt that God wants nothing to do with you because you should know better? You see, if guilt is not dealt with immediately and is given the chance to speak, it will always lead you further away from Jesus, even though He graciously offers us the opportunity to repent if we are willing. However, if we don't deal with the guilt in a godly way, the guilt turns to shame. Now, guilt is feeling bad about what you've done, but shame is feeling bad about who you are. And you reason, I can't change who I am. And so because of that shame, eventually turns into pain. And then because of that pain, you have to try to find some way to medicate that pain. And the way you medicate that pain is often by doing the same behavior, that same sinful behavior that puts you in the first place. It's the addiction cycle. An action. Guilt. Shame. Pain. Medicate the pain. Guilt. Shame, pain. It goes on and on. The only way to break it is to go to God and ask for forgiveness. Again, God knows we all sin. 
But if we go to God, then God is faithful to forgive us. This is why the seventh commandment in thought or in action is so strongly emphasized throughout the Bible. Few people give it the attention it, it, it needs to refuse the enemy a foothold into their lives when temptation comes. We must be prepared for the temptation when it comes. Like all powerful temptations from the enemy, the devil strikes when we are at our weakest, when we're tired, when we're sick, when we're worn out, when we're not feeling well, and often when we're offended with someone or something. That's when the enemy attacks. Therefore, God implores us to take all of His commandments very seriously, that we would not betray others and ultimately Him in the process. Let us remember that marriage is more than a right that we have to share our lives with someone else. Ultimately, listen to this, ultimately, marriage is symbolic of our relationship with the Lord. As Jesus is often referred to as our bridegroom, and the body of Christ is referred to as His bride. After all, this is why Jesus is returning to earth. He came here, He died, rose against the dead, went to heaven. He's coming back for His church, the bride, all of us. He's coming back as the bride gets ready. In fact, Revelations 19.7 says this. This is what we are waiting for. 19.7 says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. By this we understand that the covenant of marriage ultimately finds itself in the fulfillment in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are getting ourselves ready. How do we do that? By acknowledging that we have sinned. By repenting of our sins and coming to God and getting forgiven and asking God to help us live more like Him. And as we do that, we get ourselves ready so that when Jesus returns for us, the consummation of the marriage, the bridegroom and the bride of Christ come together. It's difficult. We must understand this about marriage. Though we will be tempted to follow after the allure of sin and the attraction of the world, we must not allow adulterous thoughts to break our solemn relationship with God. Is it difficult to resist temptation? Absolutely it is. But let us understand that if we give in to our lusts, there is no sacrifice. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, both lust and sacrifice are choices. Therefore, in sacrificing our desires and our worldly pleasures, we are defining and exemplifying our love for God. Being a follower of Jesus is all about the choices that we make. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, and blessing and cursing, Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live. We need to choose life. It doesn't happen naturally. People are not just all good. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are the heart is inherently wicked. So we need to choose God. We need to choose life. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life will give a temporary fulfillment. But in the end, they will produce death 
and alter your eternal destination. But your choice to sacrifice your worldly desires and ignore the temptations of temporary fulfillment will speak volumes to the one who loves you. It is in understanding these truths that we choose the fear of the Lord to be the beginning of wisdom for our souls, keeping them on the narrow path that leads us to life. Yet there are times when we're not respondent to the fear of God, and either out of ignorance or apathy, or a wound or a sin that has clouded our minds, our, our faith becomes shipwrecked. Therefore, let us seek to go deeper in our understanding that we may know how to battle the tempting attacks of the enemy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. See, the way that we control our own bodies is by staying in His Word through reading and meditation and prayer. As we stay submitted to Him, we remain open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit who gives us truth and discernment and strength and direction. But we need to continue to be open for God to speak to us. So where do we begin to reestablish our authority over our desires? Well, there's an account in Matthew 17 where a boy who is possessed by a demon is brought to Jesus' disciples to heal him. If you remember this, the disciples try with all their might to try to rebuke the demon out of this boy who is suffering from epilepsy. And he keeps being thrown into the fire. And the boy's father comes back to Jesus. He said, your disciples tried to cure him, but they couldn't. It's here where Jesus tells them the secret to addressing the most stubborn of the enemy's attacks. I think there's a lot of good spiritual truth here. If you've been battling with a sin or a temptation for a long time and you can't seem to break it, there's a lot of truth here if you listen. Matthew 17, verse 21. Jesus said, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. What Jesus states here is that the only way to break certain strongholds is to spend time in prayer and fasting first. What does that do? You see, when you spend time prayer and fasting and seeking God, you learn to say no to the flesh. And you're able to continue to say no as you submit to the Holy Spirit. If you're fasting food and you get that hunger and you want to eat and your flesh says, feed me, and you say no, but then you seek God in the process, you're, you're, you're starting to pattern yourself to say you're submitted to God. Contrary to popular belief, I know this is not taught a lot, but fasting is not about giving up food and eating something else in its place. Fasting during Lent it does not mean you choose not to eat meat and then go to a fish fry instead. That is not fasting. Fasting means you give up something or you resist the desire to do something that your flesh wants to do. And in its place, when your flesh is hungry to be fed, you go seek God in its place. You start praying. You meditate on His Word. And you ask for God's strength. That's what Jesus did when He went out for 40 days in the wilderness. He was hungry. Instead of feeding Himself, He sought God. And God became His daily bread. It's the power and practice of saying no to the temptations of our sinful flesh so that we can say yes to God. It is forged in the foundations of prayer and fasting. 
In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he shared this powerful truth. And maybe you didn't mean what it, understand what it fully means, but he said in Matthew 5.37, Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Notice how yes and no are put together in this same truth. In other words, when we're seeking to break a stronghold from the enemy, we have to say no to the enemy and say yes to God at the same time. I can't just say no, 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 because eventually the enemy is going to get to me. I have to say no to the action and yes to God at the same time. They are connected. It's that bait and switch. No to the enemy, yes to God. Sometimes people condemn themselves because they get attacked and they just try to say yes to God and they try to quote Scripture verses and they, and, and and they, and they don't say no to the sin at the same time. It's a movement by God where I'm going to say no to the sin and yes to God. And then as we do that, God comes in and He helps us through a difficult time. We need to continue to go to God and seek Him and have God teach us to, to learn to say no to the temptations. Just because you become, become a Christian does not mean that temptations will end. Jesus was tempted all the way up to the cross. The enemy tempted them to quit. That's why He said, it's not my will, but yours be done. But as you continue to learn to say no and submit to God, you realize that God is going to bring you through. We must never allow our will or our flesh to begin to dictate our choices in life. For if we merely give an inch, our flesh will take a mile, taking advantage of the grace of God in order to justify the pursuit of sin. Ravi Zacharias said it this way, Sin will always take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Do not be deceived. This is why we don't dabble or mess around with sin, for it simply cannot ever be trusted. Another author, Tom Drought, once said, for the chains of sin are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. Too many people in today's world are tiptoeing around this commandment, thinking that it won't harm them. One look, one show, one conversation won't harm them, but it's getting into the heart level first. We need to stay pure before God, and when we mess up, and we all do, we need to go to God and ask for His forgiveness. God can heal us. We know that if we put our trust in God, God has a plan, and God's able to help us overcome in all situations. I'm going to go off my notes for a second. So you don't have to follow me in the PowerPoint, Greg. The Bible says that to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed to the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is perfect, pleasing, and goodwill. The, the world is trying to get us to be conformed to the pattern of the world. God tells us and warns us, don't do that. If we do nothing, we'll be pulled in that way. But if we submit to God and stay open to God, God can heal us. God can renew us. God can give us strength. Whatever the sin is. Remember, it's not about the, what the sin is, but it's the shame that tries to keep you down. So whether, whether it's this commandment or any commandment or anger or explosive rage or whatever it may be, God brings us His words so that we can be drawn to Him, acknowledge our guilt, and go to Him to be forgiven. And if you remember our teaching from last week, we confess our sins to God to be forgiven. 
but we also confess our sins to one another to be healed. And so as we bring the word to you, if you are convicted, go to God first. Be forgiven. If you've sinned against someone else, ask God to give you the courage to go to that person and confess to be forgiven and healed. God wants to use every one of us in a greater way, especially now, going each step forward. And God will protect us. Remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And so right now, if this method stirred up anything in you, whether it was the seventh commandment, maybe no matter what sin it was, don't stay in your guilt any longer. Don't stay in your shame any longer. Don't stay there no matter how long you've been carrying it. God desires to break you free from your bondage so He can heal you and put you on a path to bless others as well. So we're going to do a song of reflection here. It's called Unbroken Praise. And basically it means, God, let my whole life be praise to you. Let my whole life, by what I do, by what I say, by how I serve, let it be praise. I don't want to just praise you on Sunday. Let my whole life be unbroken praise and continue to praise you. And so as you reflect on this message, if God has stirred something in your heart, don't stay in it with guilt. Lay it before God. God already knows it's there. He wants to heal you and forgive you and cleanse you. Let's take a moment to reflect on this song.